Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. Generally, when we say someone is open-minded, we mean it is a good thing, right? If I said describe an open-minded person, you'd be like, oh, it's so-and-so, and they're like this, and we kind of maybe have a smile on our face. Or if I said to you, hey, meet my friend, she's really open-minded, you wouldn't think, oh, she must be awful, right? You, now, what I might mean when I say that is, hey, you got some weird going on, and my friend's open-minded, so it's going to be fine, don't worry about it. You know, I might mean that, but we think open-minded is a good thing. You, you, you never say... You know, he's open-minded, and isn't that terrible? Like, we, we think, no, open-minded equals good, right? It's the way to be. And I agree with that. I, I think we should be open-minded about a lot of things. In fact, if we are the opposite of open-minded, if we're closed-minded, that actually costs us a lot in life to be closed-minded. For example, two, two big things that come to mind. Number one is it costs us relationships, when you are closed-minded, narrow-minded, you know, set in your ways, it will cost you relationships, especially as you get older. You will say, oh, I'm, I'm this, and because you're going to be right, and that's going to make them wrong, and they don't want to be around you when you make them wrong all the time. And so your, like, dogmatic focus, I'm right, you're wrong thing, that's going to cost you relationships when you're closed-minded. But I think the bigger thing being closed-minded, what it costs you, is growth the opportunity to grow. Uh, over the last couple of years, this phrase has kind of lodged in my head, and I think this is one of the most profound things I've learned about how people change or change dynamics or growth. Uh, it, it's this idea. In order to change, you have to be willing to get wrong. In order to change, you have to be willing to get wrong. Because as long as you're right, you won't change. As long as you, you are doing everything right, believing all the right things, nothing will, will change. You, you have to be willing to go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong about this. Um, and that is extremely uncomfortable. Because you like to be right and I like to be right. Like everything I believe about everything is right. Did you know that? Ask me, I'll tell you. Like all of my political views, all of my beliefs about faith, about God, about relationships, they're all correct. Because if they weren't correct, if I thought they weren't correct, I would change them to the correct ones. And I guess you're the same way. But the truth is, I'm not always right. I don't always do the math right in my head. I miscalculate some things. I intentionally lie to myself about some things and, and believe some things that aren't true in order to keep something going. I do that kind of stuff. You do that stuff. And the reason we do that is because when we're proven wrong, and we're wrong, it's, it's kind of painful. But growth comes through pain. So if we're going to grow and change, we got to get a little bit in, in pain. we got to be in pain a little bit, which means we're going to have to be wrong. And, and right now, I'm, I, I'm guessing you're fighting with me. I mean, people fight this idea hard that they have to get wrong in order to change. I, you're, you might be fighting that in your head right now. You're like, Chris, I don't have to get wrong. You need to get wrong. You're, you know, you're up there saying this stuff. You be wrong. How about that? You're be, it's arrogant. It's condescending, whatever. Like, I get it because I fought it too when I heard it. But it, it is, it is a, a, a truism that, that in, order to get to, in order to grow, in order to change, you have to be willing 
to get wrong. Uh, and clo being closed-minded costs us growth because we're unwilling to get wrong. So um, we don't want to be closed-minded. We want to be open-minded. But this creates a challenge for me, and it, maybe it does for you. Maybe you feel the tension. I had someone talk to me after the first uh, message in this series on wide open about, hey, um, how open, though? Like, you want to be wide open, but to what, how far does that go? And I totally get that. I feel that, too, because if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, this is what I've decided. Maybe many of you have decided that also. Some of you, maybe you haven't. But if you say, I am committed to Jesus, that means I can't be so open-minded about every religious belief, idea, worldview, philosophy. Like, I have to draw a line somewhere. I have to close it down at some point. I'm not in on Jesus to be his disciple and also the teachings of the Buddha and Muhammad and all these other, like I have to, I have to make some choices here. I have to pick. So how can I be open-minded but still stand in, in a place of, uh, of con convictions? Is it possible to be too open-minded? Um, I think it is. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. I, he, he had a way with words. Open, an open mind should be like an open mouth. It's only open for a time to shut on something solid. That's called eating. If you walked around with your mouth open all the time, uh, that wouldn't be good, right? It would be weird. You couldn't eat your food. It would all fall out. You'd be like, um, you remember Cookie Monster? Have you noticed? Did you notice that dude was all about cookies but never actually ate them? Like they'd go in and they would just fall out. Like, isn't that frustrating? Isn't that fr like, imagine being all about the cookies but can never have them. Like, that's, well, that was his world. And so um, the point of having an open mind is to actually land on something solid. It's possible to be too open. Kathy Keller says it this way. Having an open mind doesn't mean having it open at both ends. Like, okay, accept some input, but it's not just like this free flow of like, I believe anything and everything and everything is all good. And I know a lot of people talk that way because it sounds like a good way to get along in a pluralist society, but we, we actually, there's value in landing on something solid and building on something solid and actually speaking and standing with convictions. Now these principles about having an open mind and standing on something solid, th this applies to a lot of things, um, almost anything. But if we're going to apply it to God and our relationship with him, it is possible to have faith in God and stand firm in our convictions in him while still being open-minded and curious and, and allowing new ideas to come in. So it is possible also to stand with conviction while entertaining and dealing with some serious doubts. Now, normally when I teach, I would give you a scripture and I would say, hey, we're going to teach through this passage today. Here's a parable or here's a section of a book. Um, but this, this is a bit philosophical. And so I want to cover a, a bunch of scriptures and kind of look at what does, what does the, the, the Bible say about some of these, some of these issues. Uh, there are, so let's start with the, the idea of standing with conviction. There are many examples in the New Testament about how to stand with conviction or the call to stand with conviction. Let me just give you a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, the Apostle Paul says this, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. You see that, stand firm in the faith. He says, act like men, that would require a whole another sermon of unpacking that, especially in today's culture. Like, what does that mean? But he says, notice this, he says, stand firm in the faith, be strong. Stand on your convictions, believe what you believe, know what you know. Like, it, all that idea, stay, stay there strong. Uh, another one, Philippians 4.1. 
Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's a, 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 in, in a, one of the best chapters of the whole Bible, I think, Philippians 4. Uh, this is how he starts. Stand firm. Um, stand with conviction, right? Colossians 2.8. See to it, I love this one, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So it's a warning from Paul to the church at Colossae and says, don't let a bunch of idiots get you off course by the things that they're teaching and thinking. There's a lot of worldviews, a lot of ideas, there's a lot of philosophies out there that are contrary to the truth of, of Christ and what God has taught you. And don't be pulled off course. Don't let people tell you the opposite is true. Like, understand some of the foundational truths. Two plus two does not equal five. And don't let anybody tell you that two plus two equals five. Stand on the truth. Stand on the truth of your faith. It's a... It's a it's a warning, and he says, see to it, which means it is under your control. You have some agency here. You can actually do some work and, and stand um, on your faith and not get sucked into worldviews that sound nice but are actually just intellectual garbage. But you, you have to do that and not be a jerk about it. Listen to it, what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed corals. How many of you have gotten into foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels in the last couple of years? Yes, same. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I love the outward focus of this. Paul is saying, as you engage with others who are struggling, who have doubts, who, who don't share your worldview, all that kind of stuff, speak to them. Maybe, maybe they're going to repent from their sins. Maybe God's going to open up a door for them, but you speak to them and you do it with gentleness. You can stand firm with conviction, but there is no cause to be a jerk. You speak to people with gentleness as you, as, you, as you engage. And I think this is particularly true when we're talking about people who have doubts about God, about faith. Um, I think we need to be honest. Um, there's a lot of doubts out there in, in our friends, in ourselves. There's doubts that God exists. I'm not sure there's a God. Uh, I, I read about uh, an atheist group in London that uh, put ads on the buses that said, um, it, God probably does not exist, so just go enjoy your life. And I was like, that's pretty straightforward. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what they're selling there or what they win with that, but okay, you know, all right. That, that, is, a, that is a view out there in, in the world. Um, and people have doubts. And let's be honest about it. Um, there's some really hard stuff out there and in here and in relationships and at work and at home. Like, and if you look at the pain and the suffering in the world or maybe in your own neighborhood or your own life, I don't know that you would always conclude from all the pain and suffering, I don't know that you would always conclude that there's a good, loving, heavenly father out there. Like if you're like, I don't know, it doesn't seem right to me, I don't think God exists because he wouldn't allow these things to happen. Like, I get that. I get it when the, when the doubts creep in. Um, it, it makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Um, 
So, so I, I think we have to acknowledge, acknowledge that doubt. But we need to do something with it. You can stand with conviction, stand firm in your faith, um, but still have doubts. I mean, you may, you may believe what you believe. You may know what you know that you know. Like, you may stand in this very firm place. But if you get the wrong diagnosis, if you lose a friend, if your kid goes off the rails, if the finances tank, you can have your doubts too. And they can really shake you. So how do we handle that? Jude, the second to last book of the New Testament, uh, this letter, uh, Jude, listen to what he says. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. You... Get your house in order. You follow God. You do what you, you know, be disciplined, whatever. Like, love him, know him, stay with him. But man, when doubts creep in, have mercy on, on those who doubt. Maybe on yourself, but definitely on others. Why is mercy the thing called for? Like, why doesn't he say, have some harsh words for those who doubt, correct those folks, put them in line, you know, like root out all the heresy. No, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Well, mercy is the thing called for because most doubt comes from pain. And mercy is the right response to the pain. Mercy, empathy, walking with someone. Most doubts that we have about God, they don't, they don't actually come from intellectual arguments. They don't come from, I did all the math and I worked out and there's no way that God, a, a loving God exists in the universe. That's not how people get there. They get there because they hurt or they're disappointed. So our approach to those who have doubts when, when we're in, engaging with them is not to rebuke them or challenge them or give them better arguments or mock them or anything. What's called for is mercy. Show mercy to those who doubt. Think about the people you know who express the most doubts about God. Maybe you have a friend, a family member who's just like, ah, I don't believe in that. And, and they'll, they'll often say things like, I don't believe in God. I believe in, like, science, you know. That's solid. It's empirical. And that sounds like an intellectual argument, but it's, it's probably not. It's probably I don't believe in God because I don't like some of the people who do. Or I don't believe in God because my mom died and... I, that, that was too painful for me. I don't believe in God because there's awful things that are going on and therefore it doesn't make sense to me. Like most of our beliefs like that about God and most of our doubts come from hurt and disappointment. So let's, let's treat people with um, compassion, have mercy. So we stand with conviction and we should stand firm, but we need to be open to people who have doubts and when we have doubts, we need to get curious about those and start digging into that. Um, and we need to engage with those doubts with mercy. So that's kind of some scriptural guardrails, okay? Let me give you, uh, a, as we engage with others who are, who are doubting, as we try to stand with conviction while not getting all rattled by every new idea that comes across the world, let me give you a couple principles that I have found to be useful um, in, as, I, as I articulate my faith, Okay? Number one is this, think of being committed to Jesus more like a love relationship than an intellectual position. 
Our faith in Jesus um, is, is a family thing, not a philosophical thing. So it is not, I am choosing this worldview, I follow Jesus, I'm believing in God who's a deity, and I bow down and serve him like a mortal to the deities, to the gods. Like, um, that's all intellectual kind of stuff of like, what's my place and what's his place and who, who, is, who is this God? And uh, That's fine, but God chose to reveal himself to us as a father, He could have chosen any way to explain who he is to us, but he chose father. He chose family relationship. He's a father. We are his children. Jesus is his natural-born biological child, if you want to look at it that way. And Galatians tells us that we are adopted into the family. So God's chosen relationship with us is adoption. I brought you into the family. And and you are going to be loved, and you have all the privileges of being part of this family. Um, that, that is the relationship that we are in with Jesus. So when I, and the reason I point that out is when I say I'm committed to Jesus, um, I'm not being narrow-minded. I'm just being committed like you are committed in a relationship. Um, it's not just worldviews, I'm picking one and I pick this one, you're so narrow-minded, you only focus on that one, you didn't pick this one and this one and this one. No, it's, it's, a, it's a loving relationship. Um, I'm in a committed relationship. Like, Think about that in other committed relationships. If I, if I was, you know, uh, uh, my wife Abby and I, we've been together uh, 24 years, and, and what, if, um, what if someone said to me, you guys are, you're kind of exclusive. Like, I mean, you should be more open-minded. You should be open to other opportunities. You, maybe you have more love to give. Why don't, why don't you continue to be married to her, but there's like a bunch of other women you should be dating because you have love to share or whatever, right? We wouldn't look at that as open-minded. Would it? You'd be like, mm, uh, something's not right there. And if I said, no, I'm just exclusively committed to her, nobody would be like, you're so narrow-minded and closed off. No, because we know that love is like that. Love is exclusive. Regardless of how many articles the New York Times is putting out right now about polyamory, love is in a committed relationship. It becomes exclusive. That's just the way it goes in the history of history. Um, that, and we understand that to be right. So, so think of our relationship with God, um, not like, you know, be open-minded, sure, but you're committed in a relationship. I'm committed to Jesus as being his disciple. It's not closed-minded. It is focused. It is focused commitment. And related to that, maybe this is a different way of saying it, maybe with some different nuances. Number two, our faith is a commitment to God, not just to a certain set of facts. This is tricky, so hang with me on this one. When you come to Jesus, you make a commitment. I give my life to him, my Lord and Savior. You're baptized into him. We've seen that happen here at this church several times this summer. People made the commitment to Christ. They're following him. And when you do that, you're saying you're in it for the long haul. I'm with you till I die. I'm with you in in eternity. Um, Now, is that commitment based on data points, facts? Sure, to some degree, yes. I believe that Jesus is who he says he was, which means I have to believe he exists, that he said things, that they were recorded accurately, that I have an accurate translation of them now. Like, there are, there are things that are, and it's reasonable, I would argue it's reasonable to believe those things. But our, our relationship is not based on just the facts alone. In the, same way, in the same way with marriage, when I said I do, 
I believe that my wife is faithful, that she actually likes me and loves me, that she will be committed to me, that she's, you know, a good person, hardworking. I believe all of these things. But those actually aren't objective, verifiable facts. Those are my interpretation of, the, of data points that I'm given. Okay, I think she loves me. She sure acts like it most of the time. So maybe she, you know, I'll say I do. She loves me. Like, these are interpretations that we make. But the reality is for me to stand up in a wedding and say I do, or for anyone to do this, you have to make 100% commitment to her, to him. You have to make 100% commitment without 100% of the facts in. Like, you just don't know. You just don't know, which is why it's so terrifying to get married. And why, and why people put it off probably for, for so long is because, I don't know. You might really burn it down one day. I don't know. But the only way it works is to jump in with 100% commitment without 100% certainty. That's true of marriage. That's true of, I don't know, grad school. That's true of like all of the things that you've done that were worth it. You jump in with 100% commitment even if you don't have 100% certainty. And that's also true with God. You jump in with God and you make a commitment to him and you live by faith. Faith by definition has some doubt baked into it. Rachel covered that a couple weeks ago. Faith and doubt, those things coexist, they have to. Trusting in God doesn't mean I have no doubts anymore. That's not how it works. It means you follow and listen and obey and trust and have faith in spite of your doubts. This is why Jesus was so amazed at faith when he came across it. He applauds it. Uh, think about his interaction. I, I, I love this one because uh, Thomas, the guy, one of, one of Jesus' followers, Thomas is just us. He is so us. He is so like our, our, a skeptic. And, and Jesus comes back from the dead and the disciples see him risen from the dead, except Thomas wasn't there. He missed it. You know, there's that one guy that like missed out on, oh man, what happened? So they're all telling him Jesus is back from the dead. And Thomas, being like so many of us, is like, nope, he's not coming. He did not come back from the dead because Thomas knows people don't do that. They don't come back from the dead. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not buying it. John chapter 20, I want you to listen to the encounter that they have uh, after Jesus comes back from the dead. John, uh, John, John 20 um, listen, listen to what, where's, where is it? Uh, yeah, verse 24, listen to what, what happens between Jesus and Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the 12, who people refer to him as Doubting Thomas, so he's our dude, right? Doubting Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, exactly what you and I would say, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's empirical, Thomas. He's, I need to get this right, Thomas. He's, look, I'm not gonna believe until I get the facts. When all the facts are in and I can touch, I, I saw him killed on a cross and until I can put my hand in the spots where they put nails through him, I'm not gonna believe you that he's alive. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So he gets facts, he gets certainty, doesn't he? And Jesus said to him, 
Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas wanted facts. He wanted certainty. And man, I appreciate that. Many of us want that. Many of us, our, our struggle to committing to Jesus, to following him, to getting involved in a church, to any of that, many of us is because, well, I, I need some more facts. I need to know that this is really true because probably because we rightly calculate that this is going to cost us something to be involved in, with God for the rest of our lives and have a life of faith and church and all of that world. And so it's going to cost something. I want to make sure I, that I know what I know that I know. I, I need the facts. Jesus gives that to Thomas. And then he says... Yeah, but blessed are those who don't get this. You know who he's talking about? Us, right? All those who come after who aren't able to stand there and get it. And, and why is it more blessed to, to have that, to, to, to live like we do vicariously or, or like live by faith? Why is it more blessed to do that than it is to live by certainty that Thomas has? Well, I think there's a danger when we live in certainty. There's a danger that um, what we will actually fall in love with, what we will actually be in a relationship with is our own sense of certainty and reason. We will be like, well, I, I figured it out and that's what I love. I love that I know. And that's not how a real relationship works. Like I've, al- I've often thought about this. God could show up in your, your bedroom tonight with a blinding light and there would be no doubt. He could be like, call you by your name and no- tell you everything you ever did and you're like, this is the Lord. And it would overwhelm you and you'd fall on the ground and you couldn't look and it would be this incredible, powerful experience. From that day forward, you would have certainty. You would never, ever even have the slightest doubt that God exists because he would powerfully speak to you, All right? Why doesn't he do that? Well, he's, he's not trying to override your free will. He's trying to be in a loving relationship. And loving relationships require things like faith, and they require trust. This is why Jesus is so amazed. He doesn't get amazed at many things about humanity, but he gets amazed by people's faith. That in spite of all their doubts, in spite of all their hard stuff, they still are willing to follow him and walk with him. When God shows up, he shows up in ways that require uh, faith. And that has the greatest chance for us to build a loving relationship with him. Which leads me to my last point about how we would engage others and how we would engage doubt and still stand with conviction is this number three adopt an internal posture of humility philippians 2 is the classic example of this listen to what it says do nothing from rivalry or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves this doesn't mean other people are more significant than you it means you should count them that way you should other translations say consider others more significant than yourselves um, we're not keeping score here. It's not you're better than me and are you, did you win and I, I won less and I'm just not quite as good. And whatever. It's, it's none of that. It is adopt an internal posture that other people are more important. And what would it look like if you did that? How would it look in your family if you considered others more important around you? How would it look like if you were at work and you considered other people more important? Um, how would it look in school if you adopted that posture of humility? We're called to this posture of humility like Jesus in, in all our interactions. This means that I can approach a conversation with someone who doesn't believe what I believe. And, and I can have a sense of I know what I know that I know, but I'm open. 
and I'm curious, and I'm open that I might be wrong, and I'm, and I'm curious to find out where you're coming from, and I don't have to be threatened by your experience. This is maybe the, the biggest challenge that we face on, on any topic, in faith, on, uh, you know, about the, the schools, you know, and what's good and what's bad in education about vaccines and anything. The, the, the challenge is, um, can I n- read up on it and know where I stand and s- believe what I believe, while still being open to others um, without having to feel like I need to convince you of this thing. Can I, can, I hear, can I hear you out without my convictions melting away? The thing I've noticed, maybe you've noticed this too, is the people who fight the hardest to be right are the ones who are most worried about being wrong. I got a friend who was a minister for years and is a friend from college and he's now an agnostic and doesn't know that he believes in God and man, he wants to tell everybody about that all the time on social media. It is his thing. It, he inserts that into any sort of conversation. And I'm like, look, if that's where you're at, just own it. Be there. But what, why the insecurity? Why are you so, why, why do you need the people to approve? Like, why, why, am I, why are you always testing the water to make sure people, well, I'm this now, and is that okay? And this is where I stand. It's just like, own it. Um, but we fight so hard to be right because we're so worried about being wrong. Um, people plant their flags hard in the ground. They go, man, I, I'm right, and you're wrong, and I have to obliterate you so that I can be more right. And you see that in the political world all the time. Um, but I don't think people of God should be that way. If I'm sharing my faith with someone who doesn't believe in God, maybe they're agnostic, atheist, something, I don't know, um, Am I right about what I believe? I think so. I think I am. Can I listen to their story, though, and engage where they're at with humility? And, and, if, I, and if I challenge them, can I do that in a loving way? Man, I, I hope so. That's the goal. We need to be humble about what we believe. I, I heard uh, a pastor, um, I've, I've shared this with you before, David Platt. He said, uh, he said, I'm 100% sure about 80% of my theology. I just don't know which 80% it is. And I like that. I like the conviction, the standing firm with certainty, but the open-handedness of, man, there's some edges here, and, and I don't know. And I, I, I might be wrong. I, I, think, I think that's good to stand with conviction, yet still be gracious. So the reason we talk about this today is um, I wanted to walk through this progression through this series of like, if we're wide open, we see people who are hurting around us. And if we have an open heart and we love them, we will move towards them to share God's love. And if we have an open mind, we can be curious with them um, and, and, and go, let me, let me engage your doubts and your struggles. It is not our job to solve everybody's doubts and struggles. It's not our job to give them every single good answer for all of their intellectual objections. And honestly, most of that stuff doesn't work anyway. There's almost no amount of answers to people's objections I could give that will satisfy um, most people, many people, I guess. Um, It is our our role to uh, stand with conviction, to believe what we believe, to be disciples of Jesus, to be in a committed, loving relationship with him, and then share that with others and engage them and have mercy on them when they doubt. Let's pray.
Lord, help us to be the kind of people who don't get closed off. The, the church, uh, Christians, really anybody who articulates a strong belief about anything gets accused in our culture these days of being narrow-minded, closed off. Um, and so I, I pray that we're not that, that we stand with conviction, but we stand there with humility. And we say, okay, this is what I believe, but I'm, I'm curious and open to, to hearing where you're at and why you're there and where you're coming from. And if the timing is right, we speak up and we offer a, a gentle word or we offer a helpful word. God, um, we live in a culture that doesn't handle gentle words well and doesn't even encourage us to be gentle, but uh, I pray that we adopt that posture as we engage the doubts of those who are around us and as, even as we engage our own doubts and our own struggles and frustrations. Let there be gentleness and humility and mercy flowing from us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.